the Lord passed on before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which is the passage we have under consideration for this period during Advent of 2022. You're welcome. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for joining me today here on December the 7th, 2022, uh, as we are now, what, 18 days prior to Christmas. And so we're, we're continuing our study on the what are known as the 13 attributes of divine mercy, and we're doing this as a reminder, uh, so we'll have a better language for praise, a more expanded language for praise, and to understand God, and, and to be able to, to thank Him and praise Him for these specific attributes. And, and when, it's at, when we say attributes, they're, they're not um, characteristics, literally. What they are is the characteristic ways in which God deals with His people. So these are His ways. Um, and what we're trying to do is look at these as defined in that passage and as defined by uh, Jewish scholars while at the same time we're applying those through the life of Jesus to look and say, do we see these in the life of Jesus, that which would validate that? Because what we see then is, yes, they're right about these things, and we see these played out in the life of Jesus. And so that's why we're giving thanks, because we, we see it as true, because we see it in Jesus. That, that's the critical thing. We can't just stay in the Old Testament and say, yeah, yeah, these guys are right about this. Because, well, you know what? Jewish scholars are wrong sometimes, and, and they're wrong about the most important thing, which would be Jesus. So let's, let's take a look at this today. What we have is, is the attribute of being slow to anger. All right, so, so what in the world does that mean? Well, it starts off in a very strange way, to be perfectly honest with you, because what does it actually say? Does the, does the language say that God's slow to anger? It doesn't, actually. What it actually says is he's long of nose. But we know from other Hebrew literature that that is uh, their way of saying in an idiom that somebody's slow to anger. They're patient. And so that's exactly the language, though. What it, what it sa- actually says is that he is of long nose. Well, as a guy who is of long nose himself, I can appreciate that. Then maybe that's part of the image bearing of God in my case. It's not talking about a physical characteristic. Like I said, it's a Hebrew idiom, but that's literally what it says, is, is long of nose. And, and what it means is, is that, that if you think about somebody who you sit down with, and you say, I have something horrible to tell you, this is, I really messed something up here. And you tell them, and, and pretend it's your child, or you're telling your parent this, is what you're likely to hear, right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to take some deep breaths before I react. And that's what it means. It means sort of a putting distance. It's delaying the angry response to sin. So that's exactly the best way to think about it, is he's long of nose, and now you have that, that picture of what it means, which is to say I'm taking some deep breaths here. You can see the nose flaring. <laughs> you get the picture. And, and what's fascinating is I'm going to show you a second picture of exactly that with Jesus. Because what it is is to say, I'm going to take some deep breaths. I'm going to put some distance on what you just told me. 
and the way that I'm going to respond to that. And so in, in the past, what we have is God's kindness is working against his anger here. So he's, so he's delaying that, that sort of maybe irrational first response to something. It wouldn't be irrational in God's mind. That would be an, a, a, a human response, would be an irrational response. God's response would, would be rational, supra-rational. But what we all know is, is that if we delay a little bit, then we give a more measured response. And we see that actually played out already here in Exodus, because in Exodus 32, when God tells him to go down the mountain, he tells Moses to go down the mountain because of what the people had done. What he says is, leave me alone so that I can destroy this people and start all over again with you. And Moses heard what God said, leave me alone, and said, if I leave him alone, he's going to destroy these people. So he said, no, I'm going to stay here and talk a while. And he pleads the people's case, and he tries to appease God's anger. Now, would God have destroyed the people had Moses not left? Well, we'll never know the answer to that. I think the answer is no. That was not God's intention. He's teaching Moses how to respond. He's trying to explain to him what kind of relationship that he wants with Moses. When he says, leave me alone, he gives Moses an opportunity to leave him alone, right? And then to let God start all over with him. But Moses doesn't take that bait. He said, no, I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to plead the people's case, which is exactly what God wanted him to do. And so what then happens is is that Moses goes down, confronts the people, confronts his brother Aaron, and then calls the people to him who stand on God's side. They end up being the the tribe of Levi, and he says, go kill people. And so they destroy some people. They actually kill their brothers and sisters and fathers because of the sin. And then Moses says, all right, I'm going to go back up on the mountain. Hopefully I can make atonement for you. And so God listens, says, you go on. You know, y'all go on, do what you're going to do, go where I told you to go. I'm not going to go with you, though. And Moses says, no, 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 we can't do it if you don't go with us. And so God does. He, he, he relents of that, agrees to go with them, and then also sends a plague against them, but only against those who sinned, specifically the ones who sinned, as opposed to destroying everybody, which is his first announcement. So here you see that, that, there, that the piper always has to be paid. And, and what's the basis of the, the delaying of the anger. Well, it's because ultimately he is going to collect what belongs to him. The, the attribute of justice demands punishment. In other words, it insists that the debts be collected. But why do they do it? Why is there a slow to anger? What is the benefit of slow to anger if he's ultimately going to collect it? There's ultimately going to be a punishment for sin. But the reason God delays his anger is to give us the opportunity to repent. In the meantime, that he would be appeased so that our repentance would tone all that down. So the way they, they, they get at this is they, they, they have in the Talmud, there's two different Talmuds, right? So, so there's one Talmud that's, that's in Babylon, and then there's another one that's in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that the Babylonian Talmud is the one most often cited, even though it's in Babylon rather than Jerusalem. But here, the Jerusalem Talmud tells a story in order to illustrate this, and what they say is a king had two harsh legions who served him. The king said, if they live with me in the city, then when the citizens anger me, they, the legions, will rise against them. Instead, I'll send them far away, so that if the citizens anger me, then by the time I send for them, the, the citizens will appeal, will appease me, and I will accept their appeasement. And then they, they look at it in this way with God. The, the Almighty said, af, anger, and hema, 
rage are two destructive angels. I will send them far away, so that if Israel angers me, by the time I send for them and bring them, Israel will, will repent, and I will accept their repentance. You can think about Revelation in this, when he, when he brings the angels of vengeance to bear, and they finally are allowed to be set free on the earth after waiting for millennia. And he does the same thing with his people. He gives them about 500 years to repent. And we know that because he says, you're going to be there 70 years in Babylon to make up for the 70 Sabbaths you haven't given the land, which would be 490 years. So, so that's exactly the abeyance that God puts on it. But ultimately, he has to collect what's his if his people refuse to repent. And, and so our benefit, it gives the opportunity for repentance for appeasement of God's anger, and that's an important thing, and therefore it's important that he be slow to anger, because if he's not, then we could be destroyed in an instant. But, but he gives us an opportunity in that slowness to anger, in that delaying of anger, in, in the way that, that the king with the harsh legions had. He, he said, if I set him apart and I set it out there, then, I, then my anger won't boil over. Because I'm going to have to wait now to send for those legions because they're not right here. And so I'm going to delay my anger. Harry Truman used to write a letter. And one of the funniest was when his daughter Margaret gave a concert. She was a pianist. And so she gave a concert and she got, it got a really bad review. And he wrote just this unbelievably scathing letter to the man who wrote the review. Just ripped him to shreds. But, but his habit was to write these things in his anger and then put them in his drawer. And then he'd let it go. Didn't mean that he let go of the anger. He was still mad at the guy. I'm positive he knew the guy's name. He never didn't let go of that. But he didn't say the things that he might have regretted saying. And so that was Harry Truman's way of doing that. And, and I've tried to practice that sometimes in my life um, when it's like, I, I can't send that. I, I can't send that thing that I just wrote. In spite of the fact there have been several times in my life when I did send that thing and I regret it to this day things that I said that can't be taken back and that that are going to require work to restore any kind of semblance of a relationship with people if you say these things. And and so you have to be careful in that. And and that's exactly the the lesson we're to learn is to not give free reign to our anger, to take the time to breathe deeply in order to to let things cool down a little bit, not let my temper run out ahead and, and make this thing bigger than it actually is, and to give that person time. Because it takes the person seriously at that point. It ter- takes the person seriously and says, you know, I'm not going to identify them as the person who did that. I'm going to identify them as my friend and somebody that I trust, and, and therefore I believe that when they see it rightly, then then we're going to get this thing straightened out. And that's exactly what it is. And it's interesting because we can look at different ways of this. And it's interesting because remember what we said last time was, is that the previous attribute, the attribute of compassion, it only comes, if you think about it, judicial terms, what you get is, I told you about my friend who pleaded guilty, right? So he pleaded guilty to the crime he had done. He had assaulted a kid. He didn't harm the kid in any shape, form, or fashion. The, the definition of assault is an unwanted touching and so my friend took the kid, put him outside, put him up against the wall, and then put his hands on the wall. Never harmed the kid at all. He was getting him out of the situation so that he could calm this whole thing down. Well, in the process, he committed, technically, he committed assault. Well, so the judge said, 
you know what, I'm taking the circumstances of this into consideration, so I'm just going to give you a year of unsupervised probation. So that's compassion, because it takes the circumstances into account. But, it, but And then compassion is actually not compassion, but the compassion would be if my friend had broken down, cried, and, and begged for forgiveness, then, then the, the judge could have shown compassion. He took the circumstances into account first, which means that everything isn't—you evaluate things according to the circumstances. And then, so now we've passed beyond the compassion stage, where we cry out and the Lord hears us and responds to us as he did to Hagar, as he did to the people in the Exodus, and as he did at the time of sending Jesus. So we've already passed through the judgment phase, and now it's only outside of judgment that we see this slow-to-anger thing because it comes after Hanun, compassion. So it's, it's all judgment is taken care of. And the thing is that what happens is, is that we think this only goes one way, right? Sometimes we think, okay, we're created in the image of God, and therefore we love those people who, who are around us because they're also created in the image of God. So I'm, I'm to love my neighbor, whoever my neighbor might be, because they're created in the image of God, and I'm to see the image of God in that person. And I'm to treat them with kindness, as though that person were God. Well, it, it also works the other way around. And, and we don't think of this very often, that God looks at us as his image bearers. And so we, we are to look at one another, and we're to see God in one another. Well, he sees himself in us as well. That was his intention as us being image bearers. And so the problem becomes now, it's an offense and an affront against the Holy Spirit when we sin, because his sanctity, the sanctity that, that he gave us when he made us image bearers, that's been defiled by our sin. So when God looks on us and sees that we aren't taking the image seriously, he gets angry because we're not taking him seriously. So that becomes the problem. That's where the anger comes from. And so the good thing is, in, in Hanina, the compassion part, God looks on us and has personal identification and concern with us because we're image bearers, but the problem is then, here, it's exactly the opposite, because God's not indifferent to us because of the image. He has compassion on us because we're image bearers, but here, at the same time, anger surfaces, and God will certainly collect what is his, is the way that they say this. And what is his? Well, it's the image bearer. It's you. It's me. And he'll demand a personal accounting because I've offended his personal image. But then the response is delayed here because he is long of nose, slow to anger. So it's only justified in that it ultimately serves the purpose of God's goodness. It is the descent for the purpose of ascending. So so the, the descent is the discipline that we have to have because of our sin. But, but the purpose of the discipline is to raise us up to a different level in image-bearing, and that's exactly what's, what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. That's the dissension for the intention of ascending. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so when Paul gives lists, like in Galatians, of the fruits of the Spirit, he before that gives the fruits of the flesh, in contrast, fruits of the Spirit against fruits of the flesh. And the fruits of the flesh are the things that have to be disciplined out of us. 
And so that's the purpose of the discipline for sin. It's a training for righteousness, that we will become more Christ-like and therefore more God-like in all that we do. So the anger, that he has to ultimately collect what is his, which means we have to be transformed, like Paul says in Romans 12, by the renewing of our minds. And that's a big chunk of the issue of repentance and how do we get there and how do we change our lives. And it's the renewing of our minds. And so that's the purpose for God's descent into anger is in order that we might ascend in holiness and righteousness. So when we sin, we don't just receive a bad grade from the one who gives out the grades, right? He causes the one who expected from him he, who, who expected from him achievement, who expected better conduct to become angry because sin is not only a failure but rather an affront to the sanctity of the Creator. So, so that is the point of God's anger. It's not just getting a bad grade. No, it's when God expects more of us and we fail to give it, then he becomes angry. In the same way that we get angry with our children, right? Because when our children fail to do something, when they make us look bad, when they do something publicly embarrassing, I mean, there's a guy in Chattanooga where I grew up, um, this guy there who has been really well known for a long time. He's an artist in town. Everybody knew this guy as this, you know, interesting, let's say, artist. Well, his father was a really important man in town, is a really important man in town. He, he had a, an accounting firm, and, and he, he this guy raised money for every good cause on earth. His name is, is unbesmirched. Well, about, I don't know, within the last year, that artist's son got arrested a couple of times for doing some odd things, to say the least. I'm not even going to go into what those things are, but they were public and they were horrifically embarrassing. And, and, and when I saw it, I thought of his dad and thought, oh, my gosh, how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you work a lifetime to build up a name in a community and then watch your son absolutely bring it down into the mud? How do you do that? How do you deal with that as a father, you know? And, and that's exactly the, the image here, and, and that's exactly the image I'm trying to get across to you, is that's why God gets angry. Because we're sent here for a purpose, and that is to display his image, to make him known to the world. And when we sin, and we fail to repent of that sin, and we persevere in that sin, then, then God delays that anger and that punishment for a time, waiting for us to repent, waiting, waiting for us to see things the way he sees things. Because until we do, then we're continuing to say, I don't value your opinion on this. I don't think it matters very much. And so that's the issue. So you get the prodigal son. What you get in that is he he was a great affront to his father by asking for his inheritance because what he's saying is, I wish you were dead. I wish you were just dead right now. And he gives him the inheritance and he lets him go. And when I read that, when I hear Jesus telling it, my first thought is, why didn't he just tell him to hit the road? Well, that is a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about being slow to anger because he lets him go. He gives him the thing and he lets him go rather than teeing it all up right then. And then he, he lets him suffer. He lets him suffer. He doesn't go looking for him, but when he sees him, he runs to him. And what does he do? He gives him robe, ring, and sandals, restores him as a son. Now, he's already got his inheritance. He's already blown that. 
so he, he, he the punishment is there. He's not getting more. But he's going to be treated like a son in the household, not as a slave, which is the way the, the young man wants to lay it out. Well, it, it's, it's important that, that we not allow our anger free reign either, and that's exactly what James gets at. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. We need to be slow to anger, too. We need to be long of nose. And, and, and I'm going to tell you again this little story that, that ties in this whole long of nose thing. I mean, because it's a funny illustration. It's, it's a funny idiom, to say the least. But once you understand kind of what the idiom is, you, you do understand it. But, it. but it's certainly still a strange way of saying things. Well, let me tell you about another place where you see God's nose. <laughs> you see it in John 11. When Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, you see it twice, actually. What it says is that he was filled with indignation is sometimes how it's translated. But the word there is imbrimomai. Imbrimomai. And what does that, what does it literally mean? It, it, it's a horse snorting in anger. That's the image that that word is intended to conjure. That's exactly what it means. It, it's sort of a metonymy. And so it's, it's trying to say this is... So it, it's, it's, it's Jesus letting the anger go. It's not holding it in anymore. No, it's the anger of God coming out. And what is it coming out at? It's death, the greatest enemy. It's, it's Satan, the one who holds the key of death. And so Jesus, God, anger is on display. And what happens? He raises him from the dead. He overcomes death. In a, in a powerful and frightening way. And, and he brings Lazarus back from the dead. And that is to say, judgment is coming on you, the one who holds the key of death. Judgment is coming. I have the power of life. And so it, when you get to Revelation 14, you see, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. If you bow the knee and you worship a false god, here's what's going to happen to you. You will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger and you will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name, there will ultimately come a judgment. God's anger will not always be held in abeyance. So while there's time, we're called to repent, and we're called to also be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. Take those deep breaths, be of long nose, <laughs> be of long nose, and allow God to deal with the situation in his time. But our goal should never be to have enemies, and it should always be to forgive and to be reconciled. And so what we have to do is set the predicate for that person who has sinned to come against, to come to the Lord and repent of that sin.